In her best-selling 2020 book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, Calvin University history professor Kristen Cobus Dumay argues that in the contemporary American evangelical world, which she grew up in, which I grew up in, which maybe you grew up in, or at least know someone who did, there's been something distinct in the water system when it came to masculinity and gender expectations. Sure, everyone was supposed to emulate Christ, but the commitment to, quote, male authority in the church, and in many tribes, quote, male authority in the home, were publicly prioritized. Partly, it always seemed to me that these maxims were a response to deadbeat dads or the impulse for husbands to check out. But it was more than that. Because of our high view of scripture, there was also a sense that what Paul wrote two millennia ago to Christians in the church in Ephesus, quote, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, spoke with equally compelling force in an identical way to us today. Same with 1 Peter 3, 1 Corinthians 7, and a bevy of other passages. But these were easy to culturally and sociologically misconstrue. Kristen's book, Jesus and John Wayne, holds up memorable pictures of what it meant for evangelical young men to be strong, to be a leader, to be godly and masculine, and to be on the lookout for a girl in the church with a purity ring. There was the Promise Keepers movement in the early 1990s, Mel Gibson's Braveheart in 1995, Russell Crowe's Gladiator in 2000, and in 2001, a book hardly noticed by the New York Times and the Washington Post from John Eldridge called Wild at Heart that sold over 4 million copies in that year in the U.S. alone. Eldridge's book opened with these lines, Deep in his heart, every man longs for a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. It called men to something higher, much as Mars Hill Church pastor Mark Driscoll did, cataloged in last year's memorable CT podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And for millions of young people, there was something noble in that quest. It wasn't just bunk. This episode is drawn from Kristen and Walter's fascinating talk with 17 mainstream journalists at our recent Faith Angle gathering in Miami. As Kristen explains, she chose to write this book for a number of reasons, but perhaps most notably after hearing the 2016 release of then-candidate Donald Trump's Access Hollywood tape. How could a faith community that so esteemed the fruits of the Spirit toward love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control pull the lever at roughly 81% for a thrice-married adulterer whose treatment of women was such an unabashed mockery of those virtues. Kristen argues that evangelicals' long-percolating views of masculinity are critical to understand, and her remarks are followed by a wonderfully rich, wide-angle lens on American evangelicalism from Rev. Dr. Walter Kim, president of the National Association of Evangelicals since 2019, and before that, a 15-year pastor at the historic Park Street Church in Boston. Don't miss his brilliant story about the tourist who stopped in. Walter is the son of immigrant parents, and he's lived in blue-collar Pennsylvania, in New York City, Boston, and Charlottesville, where he's a scholar-in-residence, in addition to earning a Harvard PhD and a Regent College MDiv. 
Enjoy the conversation. So this book goes way back, the origins of it, more than 15 years. Actually, I could probably go back further than that, but I grew up in a a small town in Iowa. If you read the intro, you know that, Sioux Center, Iowa. And I grew up in a conservative Christian family, but not, we didn't really identify as evangelical, as Christian Reformed, Dutch Reformed tradition. My dad's a theology professor and ordained minister. My mom was an immigrant from the Netherlands. And so I grew up in this kind of distinctive space. I went off to graduate school to study intellectual and religious history, the history that really mattered. My first week there, or not first week, about third week, first semester, I was introduced to the study of gender in history. And it completely blew my mind because up until then, the only space in which gender was an active discussion in in my universe was, can women serve as ordained pastors, elders, and deacons? And in my church, the answer was no. to all of the above. And I thought it was kind of a boring question and it was yes or no. And then in graduate school, all of a sudden I realized through history that gender was about so much more. The ideas of masculinity and femininity change over time and that they're linked to religion, yes, but also to shifting economics, to foreign policy, to race, to American power. So right then and there, I changed my course of study to the study of American religious history and gender. So now fast forward, my first job was, and still in that job, was at Calvin, uh, a school in my tradition. And my first year there, I was really excited to bring to students in my own tradition this conception of gender in history. And so I was teaching a course in U.S. history, and I decided to lecture on Teddy Roosevelt because Roosevelt is such a great example for how masculinity functions in history and how it can shift over time. He represented this new muscular masculinity and it was linked to empire and to race. And so I put this lecture together and right after that class, a couple of guys came up to me and said, Professor Dumay, there is a book that you have got to read. And that book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. So, and here you can usually tell who's been in evangelical spaces and who has not. Back in, so this was around 2005 or 2006, and the book had come out in 2001. And it was a runaway bestseller, sold more than 4 million copies. Every evangelical man was reading it. My church was running book groups. All the guys in the dorm were reading it. It was everywhere. I had, up until then, successfully avoided it not my sort of thing, wild at heart, discovering the secret to a man's soul. But I took their advice, drove down to Family Christian Bookstore, bought a copy for $19.95. I still have a little price tag on the book. And I opened it up and there was a quote from Teddy Roosevelt right up front. And went on, I just started paging through and I, I saw what Eldridge was doing. And he was, he was crafting this elaborate vision of quote unquote Christian manhood. But there weren't a lot of Bible verses in this book. Instead, he was looking to popular heroes for his model of biblical masculinity. He was looking to Teddy Roosevelt, to General Patton, to General MacArthur, random cowboys and U.S. soldiers, and his favorite, Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Now, this was again 2005, 2006. What else was going on? This was the early years of the Iraq War. And we were seeing all of this survey data 
coming out that showed how white evangelicals were far and away more likely to support that war, to support preemptive war in general, to condone the use of torture, right, to embrace aggressive foreign policy. And so I just asked what historians had asked of Roosevelt, what might one of these things have to do with the other? So I spent a year and a half exploring that question. What I discovered is that Eldridge was just the tip of the iceberg. Oh, I should say like the kind of famous characterization from Eldridge is God is a warrior God and men are made in his image. Every man has a battle to fight and a beauty to rescue. Okay, that's the, the Eldridge masculinity. And it was so wildly popular that there were, there were a ton of kind of copycat books. It was a whole industry. And like the mediocre sellers were moving 100, 200,000 copies, right? These books were everywhere. And this was also the height of the Mark Driscoll era. I don't know if you know much about Mark Driscoll, a famous pastor still around, but he was out in Seattle, Mars Hill Church. Incredibly misogynistic, crass, militant, militaristic pastor that was all the rage in American evangelicalism at the time. And so I dug in. And then I set the project aside. And I set it aside for a couple of reasons. One, what I was finding was incredibly disturbing. And personally, I wasn't sure if I wanted to spend all that time in those materials. But also, it was hard for me to wrap my head around, is this mainstream or is this fringe? Because what I was reading seemed awfully extremist. And yeah, I, I saw these numbers. And I knew it was everywhere. And then as a Christian myself, I had a bit of a dilemma, it felt. Should I be shining a bright light on what might be the darkest underbelly of American Christianity? Because it sure felt like that to me. Is that an appropriate thing for me to do? Um, and at the time, it felt like a noble question. I've since come to question that. But for all those reasons, and I had to finish my first book, and I had a baby, and then I had another baby, and so I set the project aside thinking I'll come back to that at some point. I didn't stop paying attention. I kept track of many of the men who had been writing these books and preaching these sermons. And over the next decade, I saw one after another become implicated in scandal. Abuse of power, sexual abuse, either directly as perpetrators or often indirectly supporting their friends who are perpetrators. And I just kept tabs on this. This was pre-Me Too, pre-Church Too. And so this was all out on survivor blogs on, online. Fast forward to October of 2016, the release of the Access Hollywood tapes. And you'll remember, of course, <laughs> the world seemed to stop. By that time, it was clear that white evangelicals were absolutely essential to Trump's campaign. And yet, here we had this moment. How could evangelicals support this man? How could the moral majority support this man who had confessed on video to assaulting women, bragged about it. Surely, surely this was a step too far for family values evangelicals. But of course it was not. A couple wavered ever so briefly, prayed about it, and within a week were back uh, supporting Trump. And that's when it hit me. I had heard this rhetoric before. I had heard the very same language I was hearing evangelicals used to defend their support for Trump. I had read that in these books all those years before, that God filled men with testosterone so they could be strong and so they could be aggressive and they could channel that strength to protect faith, family, and nation. 
And testosterone has certain side effects, but a man has to do what a man has to do. And Trump himself promised to protect Christianity. Evangelicals were calling him their ultimate fighting champion. And it was his ruthlessness that made him perfect for this job. So when pundits were trying to explain what was happening and when the, the never Trump evangelical leaders were watching what was happening and they were saying, how could evangelicals betray their values to vote for Donald Trump? I knew that wasn't the right question, that we needed to better understand what those values actually were. And I knew that if we look to this history and if we look to a longer history, we could see that the assertion of white patriarchal authority has always been at the center of family values politics. And if we put that at the center, then suddenly this support for Trump was not such an aberration. We're not looking at a betrayal here. Instead, it's, it's more the fulfillment of what those values actually are. So a few weeks later, the election, we had that infamous 81%. I decided to dust off that old research, pulled it out, wrote a little essay, pitched it to the Atlantic. I was nobody, they declined. And instead I published it at uh, Religion and Politics Online and we timed it to Trump's inauguration. And that essay went viral. And I read the comments <laughs> and you're not supposed to read the comments, but I did. And what I saw was so many evangelical men themselves weighing in saying, this is true, this is my experience. And so with that, I decided I need to do this. And so I proposed this book, spent another year doing additional research, and then set out to tell this story. In the book, I look back to the 19th century ever so briefly to, to show how things have not always been this way, how you can find models of evangelical masculinity that elevate self-restraint. A gentlemanly self-restraint is at the heart of what it is to be a Christian man. You can also find in the American South a more militant conception of honor and masculinity that involves controlling women, children, and enslaved people. In the early 20th century, the Teddy Roosevelt era, you can see these kind of coming together in the embrace of a more, more militant, muscular Christianity, militant masculinity. But even then, liberal Protestants were as likely as conservatives to embrace this model. And conservative Protestants were not always Christian nationalists, that they rejected the idea that America was a Christian nation. Not all, but many, whereas liberal Protestants embraced that. All of which is to say, Things have not always been as they are now. In the book, I really focus on the 1940s as the era where we start to see things coming together in a recognizable form. I look at the formation of the National Association of Evangelicals in 1942, and I look at some of those founding documents. And their plan was to, to rebrand conservative Protestantism. Fundamentalism had gotten a bad rap. They kind of separated themselves from the most extreme fundamentalists, rebranded the movement as evangelical or neo-evangelical, but they had a plan. They wanted to reassert their influence over American culture. They'd felt increasingly displaced, marginalized since the 1920s. And they said, we need to band together. And we can do this and we can reach all corners of this country 
through not just the little Bible colleges and churches that we have all over the place, but we need to unite into organizations and we need to take to the airwaves, the radio, and reach into all of the corners of this country. We need Christian publishers and networks and we need magazines with subscribers in the hundreds of thousands and we need bookstores across the country. They had this plan. What's amazing is that they accomplished all of this and more within the next 15 years. Billy Graham was at the center of that, and he rose to prominence during World War II as an evangelist. And at that moment, fighting the good war, this Christian nationalism came together so nicely with, quote-unquote, traditional masculinity. And after the war in the early Cold War era, more of the same. Communism was anti-God, anti-family, and anti-American. So to be a good Christian, to be a good Christian man, you need to defend faith, family, and nation. Now, the thing is, in the 19, late 1940s and through the 1950s, this was not an unusual set of commitments, right? This was consensus, America. This was leave it to beaver era, particularly, I should say, for white middle-class Americans. And so evangelicals, just at the time that they really wanted to move to the center, they found themselves very much at the center of things. And Billy Graham found himself in and out of the White House, right? And evangelicals, again, in a remarkably short period of time, found themselves at the centers of power. Everything was going great until the 1960s, right? 1960s start to disrupt this consensus. You have the civil rights movement disrupting particularly for Southern white evangelicals, and a lot of white evangelicals were in the South, their social order. And desegregation starts to disrupt the status quo, and you see a lot of mobilization for defending not just states' rights, but parental rights, the rights of white parents to decide where their, their kids go to school, not black parents. You have the rise of feminism during this time, a direct challenge to these traditional gender roles that had really been propped up by government spending in the post-war era and were really only ever workable for some of the white middle class. And then you had the Vietnam War. And that was incredibly disruptive because it led many Americans to question American goodness and American greatness. Now, in all of these areas, white evangelicals double down, whereas many other Americans are questioning these values. And the assertion of white patriarchal authority is the fix to all of these. And so this is when evangelicals start to mobilize around these core values, but not in a consensus way, in an oppositional way, and against their fellow Americans. And so we see this white patriarchal authority wedded to Christian nationalism, the idea that Christian America must be defended, but it has to be defended on the foreign battlefields, right, Cold War era, Absolutely, but it also has to be defended against internal enemies, those who will undermine traditional masculinity, those who are undermining the U.S. military. Now, this is also the period, 1960s, 1970s, where we see the partisan political mobilization of evangelicals. Evangelicals had not stayed out of politics before this time. They were active in prohibition earlier in the century. Many were anti-New Deal in the 1930s. But what we see is together with this party realignment in the 60s and 70s, and by the way, white evangelicals 
Southern white evangelicals and evangelical pastors were helping to lead that party realignment, Southern strategy in the 60s and 70s. That's when we can see this set of evangelical values and oppositional values find a political home. And that is complete, that transition is complete by the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980 with some fits and starts in between. Now, by this time, we see that evangelicals' core commitments, particularly around the assertion of white patriarchal authority and views on war, military, gender, and so on, bring them into alliance with secular conservatives during this time. And that's one of the strands of my story, and that points to the title, the John Wayne part. John Wayne, not an evangelical. I did not set out to write a book about John Wayne, not at all. But I, what I saw when I was looking at these uh, books on Christian manhood, I mentioned William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. And if I could have found a way to put Jesus and Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart into a book title, it, I probably would have gone with that. But John Wayne also surfaced. In these books on Christian manhood I was reading in the two, 2000s, over and over, we all know that John Wayne is the icon of American masculinity and Christian manhood, right? And I thought, really? And if you go back historically, you can see how in the 1960s and 1970s, John Wayne came to stand as this iconic American masculinity for conservative Americans, this retrograde masculinity. If you think of all his greatest hits, and there's whiteness here too, all of his greatest hits, he is the white man who brings order through violence, righteous violence, but it's necessary. And he's fighting the Native Americans or the Japanese and the Sands of Iwo Jima or the Vietnamese and the Green Berets or the Mexicans and the Alamo, but he was the heroic white man who could bring order through violence. And so this all made sense. In the book, I take it up through the present, the 1990s, a, a kind of time when all of this is up for grabs, or so it seems, end of the Cold War, experimenting with a tender warrior motif, servant leadership. And it seems like things are going to be drawn in a different direction. But we see the pendulum swinging back, a kind of backlash, so that by the late 1990s, we see a return to this militancy, which is very useful for the culture wars. And that's when we see books by 2001, like James Dobson's Bringing Up Boys. Boys are filled with testosterone. And uh, Doug Wilson's Future Men, where uh, what we need is a theology of fist fighting. And John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. All three of these books are on the shelves of Christian bookstores when terrorists strike the United States in 2001. Every man needs a battle to fight, and that battle was not metaphorical. That's when I discovered this project in that moment, and in some ways we are still living in that moment today. So I'm going to talk now about some of the key kind of contributions I think that this book makes. First of all, definition of evangelicalism. If you go to the website of the National Association of Evangelicals, you're going to see evangelicalism defined the way that most scholars define it, following in the footsteps of David Bebbington, historian of British evangelicalism. And so it's a theological definition, largely. Evangelicals, you're, you're talking about biblicism, the authority of the scriptures, crucicentrism, the centrality of the cross, conversionism, this born-again experience, and then activism. So you're acting out of these faith commitments. 
When I started writing this book, I fully planned to drop that definition in the intro and go on and write my book, just like every other scholar seemed to do. But what I realized is that wasn't really describing what I was seeing. So I took a step back, and I end up describing evangelicalism more than defining it. And I describe it as a cultural movement, a series of networks and alliances, and as a consumer culture. And so we're talking about these Christian bookstores that were successfully planted, the Christian publishing, the evangelical industrial complex, Christian radio. This really defines the boundaries of evangelicalism and explains its spread. And so that's, that's one of the things that I do. And it makes a lot more sense, I think, particularly if you look at that theological kind of rubric, the Bebbington quadrilateral, the majority of black Protestants in the United States can check off all of those boxes. The vast majority of black Protestants in the United States do not consider themselves evangelical because they know that there is so much more to being evangelical than just the set of theological beliefs. Plus, evangelicals themselves have conducted surveys that demonstrate, to their horror, that many, many evangelicals are theologically illiterate, in fact, hold to beliefs that count as heresy. So I started to ask if, if this is the case, does it make sense to keep theology at the center of our definition of evangelicalism? I treat evangelicalism as a consumer culture and as a cultural movement here. When I first pitched this book, I had a number of conversations with editors at different presses. And one of them, the only one I felt I didn't really connect with, said when we were chatting, he's like, you know what you have here, Kristen? This is a new history of evangelicalism. And I pushed back. I was like, uh-uh. No, 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 no. I'm just pulling one strand through. I'm just talking about evangelical masculinity and militarism. That's it. And we went back and forth. And, and I thought, okay, that's the one I, I don't think is the right fit for this. And we ended up not going with them. And then about three months later, I was struggling with all these connections and trying to map out, working on chapter two or three. And, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, I, I think I'm writing a new history of evangelicalism. <laughs> and I felt really bad. I apologized to him later. But I was and I wasn't. Right. If this were a history of evangelicalism, there would be other voices in here. I'd be talking about Asian American evangelicalism. I'd be talking about inner varsity. I'd be talking about these other aspects, which are still part of evangelicalism. We could talk global. But what I'm looking at as what I call a dominant strand within white evangelicalism and all of these other evangelicalisms have to position themselves in conversation with this strand. Okay, another key question here that I wrestled with from the beginning is what is mainstream and what is fringe? I actually think that is one of the most important questions we need to wrestle with today as we look at white evangelicalism. What I do in the book is I'm actively asking that question. I have a chapter where I look at the teachings of Bill Gothard, undeniably fringe, right, extremists. Still deeply influential, though. I wasn't going to include him at first when I wrote this book, when I was planning it. He was too fringe. I didn't want people to write off the book as, oh, she's just going for the extremes. So many people that I was talking to when I just mentioned the general topic of the book, you are going to talk about Bill Gothard, aren't you? People I didn't realize had any connection to the very kind of conservative, authoritarian strand of evangelicalism had been deeply shaped by it. So what I do is I, I do talk about Bill Gothard. In the same chapter, I talk about James Dobson, undeniably mainstream, but I show how closely their teachings on gender and authority overlap. I look at figures like Doug Wilson, very extreme, crass, blatantly racist, misogynistic, 
And I show how very respectable evangelicals like John Piper, Christianity Today, helped platform him, smooth his way, give him cover. That's one of the themes of this book. Let's see. I talk about the relationship between militancy and fear. A lot of pundits described evangelical support for Trump in terms of they were so afraid, right? What choice did they have? And what I found is evangelicals have long been afraid of communism, of secular humanism, of radical Islam, of changing demographics, the end of white Christian America, of threats to their religious liberties. But when I looked at this history, I saw that we need to often flip the script, that it's not always the fear that provokes the militancy, but sometimes, often, it's the militancy that comes first, and then leaders are actively stoking fear. This is the model of Falwell Sr. This is the model of Mark Driscoll in Mars Hill Church. He literally would be flanked by bodyguards when he preached to gin up the sense of threat, and he's militaristic language. Why? Because if you are in war, you can demand ultimate sacrifice, absolute devotion, and stifle any dissent. And you can raise a lot of money. I have this chapter on these fake ex-Muslim terrorists who took the evangelical speaking circuit by storm after 9-11. One of them came to my college. That's how I heard about them. And my colleague, Doug Howard, is a historian of the Ottoman Empire, knows a thing or two about Islam. And within minutes, he knew this guy was making everything up. There's no such thing as a grand wazir, apparently. And so he, he called to focus on the family president who was sponsoring this guy, focus on the family, CBN, were sponsoring all these ex-Muslim terrorists who were telling evangelicals just how dangerous Islam was. And it turns out, focus on the family knew he was a fraud and continued to, and these guys are still out, still out there today. That's when I realized the fear is real, but it is manufactured by leaders in order to consolidate their own power. Let me talk in the last couple of minutes about the reception of this book. I didn't actually think much about it, except I thought a lot of people wouldn't like it. I just wanted to get this story right and tell it as powerfully as possible. As I was researching this, one of the things that struck me is just how, how much there is a culture of deference within evangelicalism. You protect the brand. You show deference to those in authority over you. You are taught to do that. These social hierarchies and obeying those who have power over you is obedience to God. It is required. I had some of those instincts when I started off. Remember, like, do I really want to, is this, is this appropriate to shine this light on, on this story? I saw what harm this cover-up had done for generations. And so one of the things I decided is I'm not going to show deference in this book. The subtitle makes that clear. The chapter titles the book itself. So I was bracing myself. My publisher's lawyer told me to brace myself. The book launched on NPR's Morning Edition, so thank you very much. And within a couple of days, I started getting letters. I still get them every day, several. Just got one about 8, 10 this morning from readers, not hate mail. Letters of gratitude from evangelicals themselves. Almost all of them say something like, this is the story of my life. And then they give me all the details. And it has been remarkable. People, if you're watching on Twitter, um, you think, wow, she gets hit hard. I do from a small number of evangelical, conservative, white evangelical gatekeepers. That, my inbox, 200 to 1, positive to negative. And so what happened was when the book released, 
I'm on Twitter. I had, I think, 3,000 followers at the time, and I wasn't well-known outside of religious historian circles, very niche. But I started getting these testimonies, and some of them would would be shared on Twitter. And I knew that the attacks were going to come. And so I thought, oh, good, this person says it's true, so I'm going to just retweet that and get get a couple positive things out there before the onslaught. And what happened was it started to create a culture, a community. Others found those stories and they shared their stories. And it just created a momentum. And it was evangelicals themselves who brought this book into their own spaces. I have done more podcasts with evangelical men than I knew existed. If there is a white evangelical man who does not have a podcast, I probably haven't met him. I go to Christian colleges, I go to Baptist churches, I go everywhere to bring this story. It has revealed deep divisions within evangelicalism. And many evangelicals find this incredibly disruptive because so many evangelicals have worked to control their own narratives, to tell their own stories about who they are, to define what evangelicalism is and what it isn't. And this disrupts those insider histories. There's also been a remarkable global response because I define evangelicalism as a cultural movement. These cultural products don't respect national borders. They don't respect denominational borders. This is a story that affects the American mainline and the global church. And so this book has been covered in Brazil. We're coming out with a Portuguese translation very soon in Australia, in China, in Japan, in the UK, in Germany, in the Netherlands, all by their national media and in Canada. So this is a global story. I'll wrap up with a sense of what is the current state of evangelicalism. Evangelicals are always asking me, where is the hope? (laughs) Give us the hope. That's a very hard question to ask a historian. And the last sentence of the book is where you'll find a little hope. That was coerced out of me by my editor. (laughs) We were just ready to send the book into production, and he sends me an email and says, Kristen, this book is really depressing. And I said, yeah, I know. And he's like, no, that's a problem. He's like, you cannot do this to your readers. You got to give us something. And so I went back, looked over the manuscript, and I, and I responded, I'm like, I've got nothing. <laughs> and he's like, okay, I respect that. And then the next day he writes back in, Kristen, just give us anything. So I reworked the last couple of paragraphs, and, and what was once done might also be undone. It's true. On the one hand, I've seen that. I've seen remarkable change, transformation, on the individual level. On the institutional level, I have not. What I see is these individual voices speak out against the systems and the gatekeepers remove them. They get fired, they get pushed out, they get burned out. And so those institutional organizational spaces become, if anything, more radicalized. Right now, as David Brooks wrote, there's this division. But I think what Brooks missed is the role of respectable evangelicals in allowing this to happen, the complicity that respectable evangelical leaders have in this narrative. I look at the book, How Democracies Die, by Levitsky and Ziblatt, and they say the key to whether authoritarian takeover is successful or not is the party gatekeepers. And if they don't stamp it down within a certain window, it is too late. I think that may apply to American evangelicalism as well. Is there a way forward? We need an honest reckoning, and we need that reckoning from 
respectable evangelicals as well. The problem is we also need to win over the moderates. And I think the tactics that we use in those may be at cross purposes. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, first, again, let me begin by, with Kristen, thanking you for the work that you do. It's essential to shine the light in these very, very important ways. And Kristen, I also want to thank you for your work. I certainly have followed it, and many within the NAE have as well, as invited you to be on their podcasts, and I'm sure we'll have opportunities to work together. I, I see that we'll be in conferences in the future months to come. So if you haven't noticed, I'm not white, <laughs> but I am an evangelical, and I don't think I look like John Wayne, but I do enter into a variety of spaces and I think, Kristen, one of the things that you uh, pointed out is absolutely critical, and that is the, the ability of a community to self-assess and to ask hard questions. Above all peoples, I think evangelicals ought to be able to do this. As you noted, one of the qualities of evangelicalism, and I'm going to get to this a little bit further by way of uh, definition and expansion, is this high view of Scripture, the sense of the authority of Scripture. Well, my own expertise, as Josh alluded to, is in the area of ancient studies. So I did my PhD in ancient Near Eastern studies. And uh, the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, is absolutely remarkable in the world of antiquity because it has the capacity that was unheralded in the ancient world for self-critique. The biblical characters are shown in all their flaws personally. Even the great hero, King David, is shown to be a murderer and adulterer, the complexity of that figure. And then the national critique that exists within the Hebrew Bible, the failures of the ancient Israelites to live up to the ideals that God had given to them. So on the one hand, evangelicals ought to be the people that most are open to such piercing and searing self-critique, because that's actually part of the biblical tradition. Yet, on the other hand, evangelicals are like everyone else, human, with their own sets of fears. And Chris and I think you've done important work in drawing that out. My own entry into this position I call myself the accidental evangelical. As Josh, you noted, I'm the son of an immigrant, son of a refugee. Actually, my father escaped communist China and literally in the middle of the night and with his family hid in fields and crossed a river in a barrel, makeshift barrel to get to South Korea, where he met my eventual mom. And uh, they were recovering after the Korean War, the absolute devastation but part of that journey for them included faith. My father got an education in medicine because of the Catholic Medical College that was founded in Seoul. My mother got a job because of the humanitarian Christian aid organizations that existed in South Korea. It was a Lutheran pastor that helped my parents immigrate to America. And I was born in New York City, and one of my earliest recollections was living in a basement apartment of an Irish Catholic family, the McGoverns, whose multitude of children taught me how to ride a big wheel and get to the local park. 
When my family, uh, for a variety of reasons, moved away from New York City to this small coal mining town of Western Pennsylvania in the foothills of Appalachia, I was an oddity. The only Asian American that anyone had ever seen other than some martial arts movie. And as you might imagine, that was a really complicated and difficult confluence of life experience. But it was also during that time where I was trying to figure out my identity, not only as a kid, but as an American. You know, back then you didn't have a manual to figure this out, right? My, my parents couldn't Google what does it mean to be an American as they were trying to come over in the mid-60s. And even if they were to Google that, America was trying to figure out what it meant to be an American in the mid-60s. And then to move from a place like New York City in shadow of Yankee Stadium, the Bronx, to this coal mining town, the foothills of Appalachia, in the midst of economic devastation, deep sense of dislocation socially, which I can name now, but I couldn't name then as a little kid, what it meant to be American was profoundly difficult, contested. But it was also at that time that an evangelical youth pastor had befriended me. And here I was, this you know, Korean-American kid from the Bronx, interacting with this country music son of Appalachia over the issue of identity. And he introduced me to a form of Christianity that, in fact, I did find quite compelling. For all the hostility that does exist, and I want to name that unabashedly as a part of a real self-assessment of the place of evangelicalism within its community. There's also hospitality that I experienced, a profound hospitality that was incredibly welcoming. And that is a part of the evangelical heritage that I entered into. Now, as I've kind of explored and grown in this tradition, of course, there are deep self-assessments and critiques that need to be levied, as well as an understanding of the complexity of all these figures. You're right, the Bebbington Quadrilateral is part of the website of the National Association of the Evangelicals, and that's a scholarly accepted definition of what it means to be an evangelical, a theological definition, which I maintain is still critical because part of what defines evangelicalism across the world, and I'm going to get to that at the end of my presentation, is a, a certain set of theological beliefs. Now, other communities also hold those beliefs. So what, in addition to the positions, define evangelicalism? I'm going to do a very evangelical thing and uh, alliterate for you. <laughs> Positions, posture, and problems. Certainly there are a set of, uh, and anyone who comes from an evangelical <laughs> tradition will know exactly what I just did uh, as, as a preacher. What are the positions? Yeah, I think there are certain theological positions that really do hold evangelicalism together as a set of beliefs. They may, in fact, mark Asian American Christianity or black Protestant Christianity. But even within black Protestant Christianity and Asian American Christianity, there is a differentiation. So that's not monolithic. So there is a subset of black Protestant Christianity, Asian American Christianity, and Latino Christianity that itself has to be distinguished 
And those terminologies of evangelicalism is, in fact, useful. As one black pastor put it to me, I am not evangelical as a noun. I'm evangelical as an adjective. So I don't call myself an evangelical as a nominative descriptor. I am an evangelical. I do call myself an evangelical Christian by way of trying to understand, even within the black church, where to situate myself theologically. So I do think there is something useful to the theological definition. But there's something more that needs to explain the cultural phenomenon of evangelicalism in America beyond the positions, and that is the posture. There is a certain kind of primitism, and I don't mean primitism in the sense of barbarism, though there may, in fact, be elements of the barbaric and the militaristic. I mean primitism in the sense of a desire to get back to the primitive principles that gave birth to something. In the face of a moribund Christianity, where do you find a renewal? There's a reason why Luther, Martin Luther, described his movement, first, not as Protestants. We weren't Protestants, as Luther described it. We were evangelicals. So the term actually began with Martin Luther giving some kind of sense of what he was attempting to do to reform the Catholic Church. And that choice of word was very distinct because it was the word that was based, the Latin word based off of the Greek word, euangelion, which is the word that we translate into English as gospel, good news. So when Jesus comes in Luke chapter 4, gospel of Luke chapter 4, and introduces himself to the world, and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he cites a passage, I've come to proclaim the good news to the poor. Release for the captives, sight for the blind, delivery for the oppressed. What Luther discovered there was a deep sense of getting back to the primitive roots of Christianity. This kind of profound sense of renewal. So there is something within that kind of primitive instinct of recovering this renewed faith in the face of a moribund faith that is a hallmark that connects Martin Luther with John Wesley, so a figure in 1700s of British evangelicalism who describes his own conversion to faith this way, that he was walking down the street one day past his church, the Aldergate Church, and he had heard the preface, not even the Bible, just the preface of Martin Luther's commentary to this one book of the Bible. And as he was listening to that, he described that my heart was strangely warmed and I came to the conclusion that I did believe in Jesus Christ. And again, I share this just as an anecdote to get at what is a posture of evangelicalism. Now that posture, I think, makes it clear that there's an inherent populism within evangelicalism. So if your posture is to get back to kind of primitive roots in a highly personal way, that's a bit anti-authoritarian in which each of these figures were. And you see this streak, you know, in the poetry of Emily Dickerson and the the writings of evangelicals. There is this kind of inherent anti-authoritarianism in a different way than what Christen describes, a highly populist desire to connect with God. So not only are there positions... There's a certain posture 
be expanded. I would also say there's a certain set of problems that evangelicals have sought to address. And that is the problem of how do the personal transformations relate to public structures. And over the course of time, in the deepest of ways, how are we to understand growing secularism, the relationship between faith and reason? Molly Worthen talks a great deal about this in her book, The Apostles of Reason. And I raise this up as the third dimension because I think when you see this kind of Venn diagram of convergence, there are these positions, but there's also a certain posture, and there are also a certain sets of problems that need to be addressed. You can see why evangelicalism over the course of time in America has manifested itself in certain ways. If, if you're trying to figure out what is the relationship between faith and knowledge, well, you get a certain sense that explains why Jonathan Edwards, one of the great theologians of the first great awakening in America, probably the person that a lot of people would point back to and say he's the first American evangelical. Well, a lot of his writing theologically was trying to understand what John Locke and David Hume were doing in Europe, trying to understand the intellectual implications of that for faith. He was working those problems out because evangelicals were understanding that the relationship between knowledge and faith was complex, was not yet worked out, was deeply contested. Having said all this, Kirsten, one of the things that I really appreciate is not only the incisive, in-depth look that you have given, but your tacit acknowledgement now that there are other forms of evangelicalism. And my own experience into evangelicalism is quite distinct. And so in some ways, I've been surprised by the developments because I have been immersed in a form of evangelicalism that I'll take a, a quick snapshot and describe with Park Street Church. Park Street Church is the church where Harold John Ockengay served as senior pastor. May not be known in the way that a lot of the mega churches of contemporary Christianity are on the map, but with respect to the history of evangelicalism, very, very important. He was instrumental in the founding of Christianity Today, of Gordon Conwell Seminary, of Fuller Seminary. I mean, you can see institution after institution. And it's an old church. It's been around since 1809. So it maps onto the history of American Christianity as well, kind of the ups and downs of it. It may come as a surprise that in 1815, the Handel and Haydn Society was founded at Park Street Church in a recognition that there was an inherent beauty to this kind of classical music that might be deemed as secular. It also might be a surprise that Asa Gray, the chair of the Harvard Botany Department, who was importing Charles Darwin, introducing America to the notion of evolution. He actually taught a class at Park Street Church on the intersection between, possible intersection between Darwinism and Christian belief. It's extraordinary. It might come to, as a surprise that, you know, in a decade before the Scopes trial that seemed to pit this notion of modernity and science with this faith that seemed recalcitrant and defensive, that a series of books called The Fundamentals were written in 1910 through 1915. And one of the legitimate options that were provided was theistic evolution, the belief that somehow both evolution and God's account of creation could coexist. 
1912, the second chapter of the NAACP was actually founded at Park Street Church. Now, you might not ever find NAACP and evangelical in the same phrase nowadays, certainly in a form of white evangelicalism, but that is a part of the history. I can proceed with that, but I want to make a point simply that it's complex. There are multiple facets to the history of evangelicalism. Now, I want to turn to the NAE in particular and make both a comment of affirmation and of self-critique. And that is, there's this strand of evangelicalism that exists in northern regions. In fact, the historian Daniel Williams at University of West Georgia notes that in 1976, the Southern Baptist Convention, the Christian Life Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, the director of it, noted in 1976 that we don't call ourselves evangelicals. That's a Yankee name. So in 1976, the Southern Baptists did not think of themselves as evangelicals. They thought evangelicals represented this other strand of faith. It's now the case that Southern Baptists would very much define themselves as evangelicals and representative of evangelical faith. That belies the complexity of the situation. So Harold John Ockengay in the 1930s preached vigorously that racism was the first and fundamental sin of America. And then in 1956, the National Association of Evangelicals passed a resolution advocating for legislation on human rights, which was the terminology that eventually led to this notion of Civil Rights Act in 1964. And it said that it was an evangelical obligation to be committed to that equal rights. That's all very promising, right? Seems to carry on the the history of tradition that a certain form of evangelicalism represents. But in the 1960s, I would acknowledge that by and large, the National Association of Evangelicals did not show up. They were absent because there was a greater fear of communism than there was of racism, the loss of the freedoms of America. And that's a profound critique that was perhaps the luxury of white evangelicalism at that time. And I think we're suffering decades of race relationships because of that profound mistake. And I'm going to name it as a profound mistake. We are, however, at an inflection point within the evangelical community. Because not simply is it a matter of northern streams or southern streams of evangelicalism, west coast, east coast, evangelical elites that come out of certain educational institutions and otherwise a populist form of evangelicalism. Now there's an introduction in a manner unprecedented in American history of a kind of diversification where you actually have other forms of Christianity that is identifiably theologically as evangelical, Asian American Christianity, my own experience, black Protestant Christianity that's seeking, and this in fact is an area of tremendous alliance within the NAE. So I would humbly submit that the NAE institutionally is actually making some profound changes in this because we are recognizing that the future of evangelicalism will in fact come from this vibrancy of commitment 
So my time in Boston, to illustrate this, my time in Boston, the American Bible Society named New England and the area around Boston as the least Bible reading area of the country. The least Bible reading area of the country. It's the graveyard of churches. Park Street Church is on the Freedom Trail. It's the third stop of the Freedom Trail through the Boston area. And one particular Sunday, a tourist came at the back of the church and saw the worship service and asked one of our ushers, how did you get so many actors to reenact the worship service? Because the fundamental assumption was this was just a museum piece. It's not possible that there would be a church here that's actually active and worshiping. And it's generally true that it's the least Bible reading area of the country and the least churched area of the country. It's also true that it's experiencing what some church historians describe as a quiet revival. Because there's an explosion of the immigrant church in the Boston area that represents the changing face of evangelicalism. Laotian churches, Portuguese-speaking churches. I mean, it's remarkable to see that. Let me conclude by one of the reasons why I'm not giving up on the term evangelicalism. I've been asked that so many times. Congratulations, or maybe even condolences upon my <laughs> stepping into this position. But invariably, one of the earliest questions I got was, are you going to drop the term evangelical? To me, it's less important that the term is kept. It's more important that people are deeply connected with a kind of faith that is transformational and contributes to the good of society. But one of the reasons why I'm reluctant to give up this term at this moment is because of my experience at the World Evangelical Alliance in Jakarta, Indonesia in 2019, just before I stepped into this position. And in this general assembly, we're gathered 800 delegates from 90 different countries and singing in all different languages, many of which I could not understand all the syllables even, but I understood the spirit of what was unfolding before me. And there was a deep, there was a panel on what is happening to American evangelicalism at one of the plenary sessions. And on that panel were evangelical leaders from Africa and Asia and South America, but not, not America, purposefully so, and I think rightfully so. And they were deeply concerned by what was happening in American evangelicalism. They were deeply concerned for its renewal and restoration, for its strengthening, because they understood that this was a part of a broader community that they wanted to maintain. And I walked away from that panel discussion, recognizing that, you know, it's a really American thing to jettison the term evangelical when it's inconvenient for us. But there is a global community of followers of Jesus that I would love to claim as brothers and sisters in faith and deeply committed to, not in a patriarchal way, but in a way that learns humbly from what is happening in the church in other parts of the world. Faith Angle exists to connect mainstream journalists with leading religious scholars like Kristen Kobus Dumay and pastors like Walter Kim, so the storylines become better and more nuanced. Thanks for listening.